0: Welcome to the worst nightmare of all, reality. Explore the lesser known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Hey everyone, I'm Greg. I'm Ash. We're Pursuit of the Paranormal which you'll probably know because you're listening to our podcast. But there are several ways that you could support the show. Um, You can visit our merchandise store, where we've got loads of clothing and other bits and bobs there for you.
1: And we also have launched our Buy Me A Coffee campaign.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that, Ash.
1: so you can support the show with a one-off donation, or you can also join our membership scheme, which gives you different benefits, including shout-outs on the show, discount on the merchandise store, early access to episodes, bonus episodes all of these different levels of membership. It just helps us carry on doing what we're doing.
0: So you can visit all these places and more at linktree.com forward slash pursuit of the paranormal.
1: Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, This week we are joined by a former guest who's actually on in in our early days of the podcast. And so we are welcoming back Craig Bryant to the podcast. Welcome Craig, thank you for joining us again. Thanks, Ash. Thanks, Greg.
2: Hiya, hi guys. Great to be back. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, busy, busy,
0: busy. Yeah, yeah. I've been, uh, I've been listening to some podcasts with you on it recently. So, oh, thank you. With Michaela. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a good one. We've, we've been guests on Michaela's podcast. Yeah. As well, and she's been a guest on here. Yeah. So interested to talk to you following your conversation with her as well. So tell us, what have you been up to? Um, well, um,
2: I've got a new book out, which is called um, "The Black Monks of Accrington." Um, it's been uh, probably about two years in the writing um, since since my last book, which um, got quite good reviews. Actually, it, it seemed to get um, seemed to gather pace. Um, I had some some really good reviews. I, I've People who don't know, I've got my, my own podcast as well, um, and I've interviewed uh, quite a few sort of well-known um, people in the field on there, and, and they've all been very, um, you know, also very nice things about the book, which is great. So that sort of spurred me on really to write the second one. Um, unfortunately, I'm a bit lazy when it comes to writing. I do um, enjoy getting all the uh, evidence and everything together, and getting the stories together, and doing the research and. Um, going out to places and having to look around taking photographs you know talking to people um but then actually finding time to get it down um on paper as it were, or, or you know in a word document as it as it, as it now is um is is a bit, is a bit more difficult um work full time as, as you guys do uh, I've got a family um although uh, my son's need well he'll be 16 this year so um I've got Probably slightly less to do with him <laughs> than than I you know than I did when he when he was younger. He's a bit more um, bit more self sufficient now. So and he spends all of his time in his bedroom streaming. So I hardly ever see him anyway. Um, so I I, I I I pushed myself really over the last few months um, just just to write what what I wanted to write. I'd had it I'd had it all. Um, in my head, really, and, and, and lots of notes and post-it notes all over the place, and, and I just thought, right, I need to get this all down, and I'm, I'm really pleased with the book. Um, it's a little bit more uh, varied than the first one. There's there's a bit more uh, UFO stuff in this one, UAPs. Um, I did some really interesting research uh, into uh, Morecambe Bay, uh, following a couple of emails i got from a guy through my website um about probably about 18 months ago now but he was he sent me some really interesting stuff and i started doing some research into historical um ufo sightings around morgan bay um and i was quite surprised really about the uh, the frequency of them but also the the types of uh, sightings were were all exactly the same, really. They were all the same kind of craft. Um, and I've also got a lot of stuff in there, a lot, lot of ghosty stuff, a lot, um, lot of stuff which is very local to where I live. Um, I do sort of move a little bit further out of, of East Lancashire in this book, but only really to areas that sort of link into to what my area of, of interest is, which is sort of East Lancashire, Pendle Hill, um, Forest of Bull and you know um, Accrington, Blackburn, Burnley, that sort of area around there. So, so East Lancashire. So, so yeah, that's that's basically what what the book's all
1: about. So I think when we last had you on, we were talking about your first book, *The Shadow Man of Accrington*. Yeah. And we sort of kicked off with of asking who the Shadow Man of Accrington was. Yeah. This book is called *The Black Monks of Accrington*. Yeah. So. I guess the question is, who are the Black Monks? <laughs> who are the Black Monks? No, a very valid question. Um, yeah,
2: it, it's um, when I was growing up in the town, there were, there were a number of um, legends and ghost stories that surrounded an area of the town called... Um, well, there's two roads, actually. One's called Abbey Street and one's called Black Abbey Street. Um, and historically, going back to the um, 12th century... There was actually um, uh, an abbey was was built there. Um, the area, of course, at that time wasn't wasn't a town. It was it was you know barely a, a hamlet really. There were um, there were a few farmers um, in the area. It's not a particularly good uh, farming land, um, and the land was actually given over to the um, to the priory at Kirkstall Abbey over in in Yorkshire. Um, the land was actually owned by a, a guy called Robert De Lacy, and he, he was a big landowner in, in the area. Um, he was he lived uh, quite close to a, a village called Wally. Um, he basically owned all, all the land in the area, and he gave uh, some of this land, which is on the site of, of where the abbey was built, uh, over to the, to the monks at Kirkstall Abbey. So um, the local... Uh, farmers were not too happy when they found um, that all their farming land was being confiscated by uh, the obviously very religious and very pious monks at at the the abbey. It was basically a land grab. And what happened was there was a a bit of a a local revolution um, and the, the abbey was actually burnt down. Now, that's one of the reasons why it's called Black Abbey Street. Uh, as I said, there's two streets Abbey Street, and Black Abbey Street, and and sort of where the intersection is. Um, there's there's a, a natural river runs through there, and that's that's why they built the Abbey there. So there'd always been um, sort of legends around that area. One of one of the main legends really was uh, the ghost of um, a young girl was uh, has been seen for well, going back decades. I mean, this is a story that I heard when I was when I was you know a little boy in uh growing up in the town 50 odd years ago now um so it's sort of like a very well-known uh legend and and basically there's the the uh she's seen floating down uh black abbey street um and when she's approached uh, she bursts into flames now uh, it's it's been well documented. I mean, you talk, talk to anybody in the, in the town or anybody who lived in the town for, for any length of time and, and, and they, know the, um, they know the legend of, of, the, of, of this woman. Um, but the interesting thing about the monks is that there's also been many sightings of black hooded figures. When the abbey was burnt down, uh, there were three monks were, were burnt to death um, inside the abbey. And the story goes that it's their ghosts that are seen in the area. Now, I started to do a little bit of research um, because I was contacted by a guy who I uh, actually interviewed for my podcast way back in the early days of the podcast. Um, And he was part of um, an investigation group that used to do investigations into the police station and the magistrate's court in Accrington, which are just around the corner um, from where Black Abbey Street is. Now, both of these buildings are actually empty now, um, but the the Grade two listed buildings, so they can't be uh, demolished and and they can't really be altered in any way. They were both built in the 1930s, so they're sort of like art deco buildings. Um, So this local uh, ghost group moved in, in effect, and started doing um, lots of overnights. And um, there were two or three strange things happened. There was one occasion where a number of them actually got locked into a cell, um, down in the, uh, the 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 cells at the police station, um, and the, the the lock actually closed, and, and they they couldn't get out. They had to wait for the uh, for the, the fire brigade to to arrive uh, a couple of hours later to actually cut them out of the cell. Uh, but they'd, they'd seen or, or there have been sightings over the years of these you know various black hooded figures, um, and uh, I had several emails from from people who uh, lived in the area had lived in the town for a number of years um, with with personal sightings some of them on uh, on black abbey street some of them around where the, the courts and the police station uh, are situated and in fact there have been some sightings of the monks actually drifting through uh, the the magistrates court then magistrates court um but i got i was contacted by a guy actually who um told me quite an interesting story um where the the uh, corner of black abbey street and and it's actually called manchester road where the, uh, the where the police station and the, the courts are um on the opposite side of the road there's an area called broad oak and uh, broad oak originally was the, there was um there was a large cotton mill there in the 19th century so it's been demolished now um, and it's also sort of like small independent um industrial units so there's there's carpenters and and you know um various other sort of like I mean they call them artisan um producers don't they these days so small scale you know um potteries and and that sort of thing little potting shops um and there was a guy who contacted me he he said that he um he worked in broadock and every morning he used to walk to work and he would he would walk down where the, the an area where there's an old disused uh, railway line because there, there was originally a railway up until the 1960s when as you know a lot of the rail, you know a lot of the smaller railways were closed down um, there was actually a railway which was built to bring materials into where the the cotton mill was um, now that's long gone. The tracks are up and everything, but you can still walk along where the where the railway line was. And he said he used to walk along um, the disused uh, line every morning to go to work. And he said one particular morning he was he was walking his his normal route, and he noticed something in the distance. And he said it looked like he thought it was like you know teenager with a with a hoodie up basically. Um, but he said as he got Closer and closer, he realized that it was actually um, it looked like he said um somebody wearing a monk's habit. Um and he, he said it was side onto him and he, he could see. I mean, he said it was absolutely plastic He he could even see the rope around the waist where it was tied up around the waist. Um and he said, as he got closer, it turned towards him. Um, and of course, at this point, he's sort of <laughs> walking a bit slower by this point. So he's trying to work out what, you know, exactly what it is he's looking at. And um, he said he couldn't see any facial features or anything like that. It was just, you know, just just a void um, underneath the, the cowl. Um, and he said it, it then just disappeared. It just disappeared from view. Um, and he, he said he'd never seen anything like it before. So... We thought uh, I, th- I thought I thought that was quite interesting. So that's that's gone into the book as part of the evidence of uh, you know of these um, these ghosts being seen in the area.
1: So do you have any theories of what the monks are like? Are they the spirit of the monks that died in the fire? Are they still wondering as if they're still like like a time lapse sort of type of ghost? Or are they yeah sort uh, well, of reacting to the environment? Or yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I did. I I think. Pretty obviously, the the spirits of because of three of them, they're obviously the spirits of the three monks that that died in the, um, died in the fire. Um, I mean, I've got a, a a theory that you know where you have, um, people who are, you know, unfortunately involved in accidents or, you know, suddenly um, suddenly dying, you know, very quickly, if you know what I mean. Um, that there is some because of such an emotional um, outburst um, when that happens that that emotional energy somehow manages to to stay around and and manifest itself as as you know whatever people people see um, uh, this energy as and I think I think sometimes it also depends on 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 the viewer the person who's seen uh, whatever this energy is I think you know I think we all interpret things slightly different um, I think we all um, I, th- I think I think some people are more susceptible to seeing things and hearing things and feeling things mm-hmm. um, than others and and so I think I think whatever that e- whatever that energy is that's left behind um, I think sometimes people can can possibly interpret them slightly different you know from one person to another but I think the fact that you know they are often seen as monks or, or manifesting as, as monks, um, I think is is pretty compelling evidence that you know they are from the from that that tragedy, you know, all, all those hundreds of years ago.
0: So when we spoke before, when you're first on, we were talking about the different types of spirits. So we would talk about, like Ash mentioned, we got the um, like a stone tape theory where it's just. Some residual energy in that yeah. particular area, or they're just repeating mm. the same action, and people just see the same thing over and over. Yeah. What What type of activity, based on the, the the people you've spoken to, do you think it's like a stone tape theory, or they're actually trying to interact with people? There don't
2: seem to be any interaction with these. Um, they just seem to be sort of replays. Um, so you know the the stone tape theory um the the woman that's seen on uh on on black abbey street that bursts into flames i think that is that's definitely a a stone tape theory um she uh actually the 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 story goes local legend is and 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 i don't know how, how true this is uh but she actually fell in love with one of the monks um, and her brother found out, uh, with, lied in wait, you know, with, with some of his mates and some very very sharp swords, um, and did this monk through in front of her, and of course she died of a, of a broken heart, um, and so the energy that, that was released, the emotional energy that that was released, um, I think is 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 just being replayed. Now the interesting thing about that one is, of course, we've we've got the um, the the legend is that if you see her. Um, and you get too close to it, then she bursts into flames. Now, I think that's quite interesting, because obviously that sort of, you know, um, leads into what happened to the Abbey. Um, not, in, not particularly in, in the fact that she was burnt to death. Um, we don't, you know, there are no records to, to suggest that she died in a fire. So I think that's quite interesting. That's sort of like a, a good example of, of maybe you know, legend and facts becoming a little bit blurred. Um, but I think there's definitely stone tape. Now, interestingly, there's, the, there's another road which is very close by called Warner Street. Now, there's, there's a particularly uh, nasty, very physical poltergeist, um, which is, is in one of the shops on, uh, on Warner Street. I mean, Warner Street is basically, you know, a long row of, of um, shops up both sides of the road. And there's all there's all sorts. There's, there's like a little um, little Victorian arcade as well at the bottom, um, which is quite you know quite quaint. Um, but there is there is one particular shop, and and you know over the years again there's been, you know there's always been a legend that that Warner Street is haunted. That you know that, that there are certain places on there that are um, that are haunted, and and you know there have been quite a lot of both local and, and non-local groups have gone and, and done investigations there. I spoke to one, uh, one local uh, medium who went into the shop. She was actually invited in by the owner of the shop um, because there was, there was some particularly nasty um, physical um, manifestations going on. And when her husband went in and went, walked up the stairs, he got to the top of the stairs and he was physically pushed back down the stairs again by something now this um this spirit actually came through as he called himself josiah and she said that he looked she could see him and he looked very tall and thin um with a a, a really big mustache and a hat like a sort of top hat now the particular, this particular shop um, was the site of a murder back in 1892 and the the woman that was murdered was called uh, Sarah Coates and her husband um, had a carpentry shop which was on the opposite side of the road um, and I've actually looked on the census reports so I found, you know, I found where this, this shop was and everything and sure enough there was Sarah Coates and her husband and there was also A lad by the name of Christopher Hitchens, he was 15 years old at the time, and he actually found Sarah Court's body. Um, She'd been stabbed. Now, he claimed that when he found her, um, there was a man stood beside the body holding a knife, and he was described as very tall and thin with a very large moustache and a big hat carrying a bag. Um, And he exited quickly when. Christopher Hitchens um, walk, you know, walked in and found the body. Um, now, he was actually arrested, was Christopher Hitchens, and he was initially charged with, uh, with the murder. There's some quite interesting uh, forensic evidence, which I talk about in the book. I won't, I won't give it all away. Um, some in- interesting forensic evidence from uh, the doctor who attended. A guy by the restring name of Dr. Geddy, um, and he investigated the body and, and you know, looked at um, the injuries that Christopher had because he he had um, sustained some injuries as well. Um, I think he, he sort of had a bit of a slight tussle with this this figure before this this individual before he left. Um, and the, he had marks around his neck, which he, he claimed were where he grabbed him. Anyway, he. Um, He ended up being taken to uh, Lancaster, uh, to the castle at Lancaster, to the courts, uh, and he was put on trial there. And during the trial, there was um, a letter was received, uh, an anonymous letter. And it was written by somebody who claimed um, a few days earlier to have been in a, a pub in Bolton. And had got talking to uh, what he described as a very strange guy, very tall, very thin, with a large moustache and a hat, um, who was very drunk. And he, he said that he'd admitted to the murder. Now, the following morning, strangely, um, they found this individual's body. He was dead, um, strewn across the uh, train tracks, the railway line um, near to Bolton Station. So anyway, the um, because it was an, uh, an anonymous letter, the court uh, decided not to take it in as evidence, and they found Christopher Hitchin guilty of of the murder of Sarah Courts. Um, but luckily for him, um, even though they, I mean he was fifteen, but at the time they were still uh, passing the death sentence on you know children as young as fifteen. Um, luckily for him, they didn't pass the death sentence, and he was. Um, just committed to the jail, basically. Um, and then it, it, his story really just goes cold after that. There are no records of how long he spent um, in the jail, uh, whether he, he was released at any point or, or whether he died in there. But the interesting thing about this very tall, thin man with a hat and a large moustache is that he sounds very much like um, what people describe as a, as a shadow man. Um, and of course, in the first book, I talk about a sighting that I had um, at the um, the Conservative Club in Accrington of a very tall, thin um, man with a you know with a very tall hat, um, and that the location of that um, is is very close to uh, to Warner Street. In fact, it's actually just. Um, so sort of, basically, if, if you walk to the bottom of Warner Street, you cross over the road at the bottom, which is called Bridge Road, uh, you then get onto Cannon Street. And if you walk up Cannon Street, the, the building where I saw the sighting was, was literally a few hundred yards upon the left. So the whole area um, is, is quite interesting. So whether it was the same, um, the same entity or not, I don't know. Uh, but the one that is um, often seen in the shop in Warner Street um, is actually quite physical. It, it tends to, to move objects and push people around, whereas the one that I saw there was there was I didn't get any indication at all that it was um, conscious of knowing that I was there. Um, so it was it was slightly different. But interestingly as well, there's also the ghost of Christopher is seen um often running across the road from one shop to the other um, and there's been a few occasions where cars have had to slam the, the brakes on and you know they think they've run, run a um a boy over and when they get out obviously there's there's nothing there so he he still obviously um haunts the area as well wow so yeah interesting
1: that sounds quite exciting. Like to me, obviously, actually doing your research, and you think that could have been the same spirit that I saw like all these years ago.
2: Yeah, it did. Um, actually, it was. Yeah, the penny dropped um, quite quite loudly at one point, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute, there's a lot of similarities here, and it is, you know, it is in the it is in the same area. It's literally within a sort of you know quarter square mile. So um, the whole area, I believe, is actually quite active with um with paranormal activity um there's like a sort of little nature um reserve quite close by it's an old um it's an old lodge that was uh, that was built for one of the uh, one of the cotton mills and of course you know the mill's been knocked down now and but you know that it's like a big sort of man-made lake in effect um and they've made it into a sort of nature area so you can walk around it and you know, people often use it as a bit of a cut through. and uh, I was talking to one guy who said he, he was walking through one evening and he said he, he he really felt somebody was behind him. And he kept turning around and there was nobody there. And he said and then, and then as he was walking, like he said, speed up, obviously, because um, he was a bit, you know, a bit, um, bit freaked out by all this. He said something actually grabbed all of his shoulder and pushed him. So again, that's, and, and, and that's, that's in roughly the same area. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's more, there's more research to do um, on that area, uh, but it's interesting. I've spoken to a few people and I've had a look at some maps, actually, some old maps um, and in particular, layer Lines. And there's actually a couple of layer Lines that run very close to, um, to, to this whole, whole area, really. And There's also, as I said before, there's there's, there's an actual watercourse. There's a river that runs runs through the centre of the town, um, and it, it briefly sort of uh, comes up through a culvert near to um, Black Abbey Street, uh, and then disappears back underground again. Because obviously, you know, it's been mostly built over now over the years, but it's still it's still there. Um, and I'm I'm starting to to sort of come to the conclusion that not only are the the lines of energy that run along layer lines. And if you'd have asked me about layer lines two or three years ago, I'd have completely debunked the whole idea. But the more research I do, you know, the more I'm becoming um, convinced that there is something in it. And I also um, starting to, to sort of believe that, that there is something in um, energy in water, flowing water in particular as well, because again, you know I'm, I'm talking to people who've had experiences I'm, I'm coming across stories that people are giving me where there is water involved or the streams or there's a river close by um you know there's there's two or three stories that i've been told very close to where i live here that that involve water um so and you know Pendle Hill for instance have got has got lots of watercourses running off it So I think there's definitely some sort of energy involved there and I think it's that that's causing these um, these this type of paranormal activity um, doesn't have to be just be paranormal activity it can be UFO activity as well um, that's sort of bringing it in and concentrating it more more so in those sort of areas than, than other areas you know
0: so you mentioned about UFOs and UAPs and you say that you touch on it in the book as well. Yeah. Um, so what have you found in the local area then relating, you mentioned Morecambe a little bit earlier as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what have you been finding out UFO related wise? Cause that's obviously quite a big change or shift from like your first book and, yeah. and the ghost stories that we've spoken about before
2: yeah i mean i I think i think a lot of people naturally branch out um from one discipline really into into another i think at one time you'd find that you know people were were very sniffy about other things so for instance if you were a if you were a ghost hunter university commons or or if you were you know a paranormal researcher then a lot of the time you would you wouldn't bothering with UFOs and UAPs you'd sort of debunk it um, and vice versa if you were a UFO and a UAP investigator you know you didn't you know ghosts were a lot of old rubbish and and they didn't exist and and I still think there are people that are like that Um, but I think that there are a lot of people now that are looking at crossovers um, and, and certainly I think as I said one of the reasons why I think there are certain areas that seem to be rich in both paranormal and UFO activity and other activity as well. I mean, cryptids, you know, animal mutilations, all that sort of thing. They all tend to be in, in sort of quite, um, you know, sort of small areas, very, very um, what's the word I'm looking for, very uh, concentrated areas. So yeah, I got an email from a guy who lives um, in Barrow in Furness. So, I don't know whether you know more Bay or not it's quite a it's quite a large area of um basically it's mud flats and and then sand it's um, it's a tidal estuary it's up on the the west coast of Lancashire, so it's just up from from Blackpool um top end of blackpool's place called Fleetwood, and then from Fleetwood, if you follow the coast round you come to um, Hesham, and then Morecambe, uh, You follow the the coast round to where the River Kent comes in, so that's that's why it's um, it's a river estuary. And then you follow it round the coast again, and you end up uh, at Barrow in Furness and a place called Walney Island. So it's about four hundred square miles, so it's quite a, a large area. It's flat. It's very bleak um it's also you know very picturesque it's it's there's certainly something about it that i find fascinating and i always feel um drawn to the area um there's been some interesting discoveries over the years um in fact there's evidence of people um living there or living around that area probably pre-bronze age um so it's it's a very um very rich area in, in you know in wildlife and um a lot of uh, a lot of fishing industry over the years and there's lot lots of little um villages dotted all the way around. But the interesting thing about it is that at Heesham there's a nuclear power station. And if you uh I mean you can see right across the bay from, from one side to the other on a clear day so um walney island on one side of the bay you can see right across 20 odd miles um 25 miles or whatever it is across the sands to uh tahitian and to moicham so i had an email from from a guy who used to do um he said he does does quite a lot of uh, night fishing um off walney island Uh, and he said on on a clear night you can you can see across you can see the You know, the lights twinkling in the distance of of all the villages and and Morecambe, uh, which is a a reasonably large town. Uh, And you can also see Heachan Power Station as well. And he said there would have been quite a a number of occasions where he'd seen um, what he would class as UFOs, UAPs, um, usually bright balls of light, um, but he'd also seen some triangular craft as well which is interesting because the vast majority of the reports all involved triangular craft. Uh, so there was one going back to the earliest one I could find was 1938. Um, there was some local fishermen uh, reported to uh, the paper, um, the local paper in the area that they'd been out and they'd seen this object in the sky, which they described as a, as a black triangle type object. Um, and of course this, this was, this was pre second world war. So, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, um, anything that could be uh, secret, you know, RAF or, or, or American, um, aircraft, you know, or anything like that. I mean, you know, these were obviously extremely advanced for, for the time. Um, but more recently there's, there's been several other sightings, um, He said that that he saw these objects and they all seem to be moving towards um, or staying fairly close to the power station. Um, Now, the interesting thing about that is that the power station actually has got an early warning system. And I know it's got an early warning system because many, many years ago, um, my wife, Sarah, bought me a flying lesson from Blackpool Airport um, in one of these, you know, like little Cessnas, um, and we actually flew up from Blackpool Airport up over uh, Morcombe Bay, and flew up to the Lake District, and sort of, you know, came back, came back down again. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so the uh, the guy that was taking us out um, on the flying lesson said that we we couldn't get too close to Hisham Power Station; they had to keep a, a certain distance, um, and he actually got on the radios as as we were going along and um you know sort of identified who we were and where we were from and where we were going to and everything else so commercial aircraft or, or even private aircraft can't get too close simply because it's a working nuclear power station um obviously there are security concerns you know it could be terrorist attack or anything but these objects Seem to be able to approach and get pretty close to, to the power station really with without you know without much difficulty. Um, now whether or not they're being tracked and they're being logged um, to make sure that you know they're not a threat to the to the facility, I would imagine they would be. Um, but over the years, there've been so many other sightings of, of these black triangular craft, and, and one sighting. Which was made by, um, again, by some fishermen who were out on the bay. Said that there was upwards of thirty of these objects. This was in broad daylight, um, above above that were there uh, were out out in the out in the bay. Um, which to me is quite amazing, really, because you know you can you can sort of I suppose explain away maybe one or two as as perhaps being um secret uh, military uh, craft although why they would be out in broad daylight over an area which is you know it's so flat that you can see for for miles and miles around so you're obviously going to be spotted um no matter where you are on the coast you're gonna you know if you're looking out over the bay you're going to see these things so if they are um you know secret military craft then they're not they're not <laughs> they're not doing a lot to keep them very secret Um, but in this case they said that there was there was upwards of 30 of them which you know I find quite quite incredible Um, and there was also a report from uh, again this was a report it was made to the police and it ended up in the local paper of uh, a guy and his daughter who were um, down on the coast in in one of the the quieter parts of the of the coastline and uh, again they saw a, a black triangular object um which was actually moving towards them at speed and he said that they were both actually quite scared they were quite quite frightened Um, and it stopped he said not more than about 30 yards away from them um, and then turned around and shot off back in the direction it came from so you know again are we looking at i mean he, he described i mean they've been described as various sizes but um one of them was described as being the size of a car so, they're not drones. Um, and, and, you know, the, these reports really are, are they, they don't know what they're seeing. They are very strange. Um, and at the same time, apparently, that this, uh, this guy and his daughter saw this object, which behaved, you know, quite, quite strangely, um, there was somebody who uh, lived on the outskirts of Morecambe and he was out in his garden. He looked up and he said there was this huge black object hovering above his house and his garden for about 30 seconds and then it just silently um, whizzed off into the distance as he put it so so there is definitely something um now whether or not they're being attracted in because of the the nuclear power station there's actually another nuclear power station which is further up the coast around from uh, barrow in furnace up on the the cumbrian coast and that of course is Sellafield. Um, which I don't think is an actual. Uh, I think I think they just process uh, waste now. But it was it was a working um, power station, and in fact I didn't realize this. But in the nineteen fifties there was actually a radiation leak. It wasn't as um, it wasn't as bad as you know Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. But they had their own little mini meltdown, um, and so you've got to wonder really whether are we being observed? Are these craft? here to keep an eye on us to make sure that you know we don't do anything silly um but i also believe you know that there's been and and, and this is this is going off tangents a little bit but there's been quite a lot of unidentified uh craft and some of them are triangular um, seen uh, near some of the um the war zones and fighting uh, that's been going on over in ukraine um, now whether or not they're military craft obviously or or whether there's something else, um, who knows. But I just find it interesting that, you know, the description of the craft are all the same, the way they behave, they're all the same. Um, and they seem to be drawn to these you know particular areas where there's, um, certainly with nuclear power stations, but also where there's um, military installations uh, and, um, you know, sometimes
0: conflict zones. So it's funny you should say about the conflict zones, because I've I've also seen online about um, strange objects being seen over Ukraine recently. Um, But then I I did see other people commenting to say that it can't be Russians or can't be the Chinese because they'd have used whatever technology in Ukraine. Yeah, they would so which suggests that what we're seeing and what the tic-tac stuff and all those kind of objects that have been seen over the years, it isn't a foreign adversary. No. It's that's something else. Something else, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean we've we've had a lot of sightings around here, um, over Pendle Hill and um the whole area really around here going up to uh Skipton and, and Moor, and then going down to uh, Todmorden, of course, which is a a well known uh, a well known area for UFO activity, and um, obviously the Alan Godfrey case, and also you know more recently the um, the animal mutilation cases that have been going on down there, and also sightings of big cats as well, um, which I don't I don't know whether you were you were aware of that, but last year there was um, there was a report of a family who were walking um, on the outskirts of Tomenden. and it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a sizable small town, really, now, is Tomenden. You know, it's not a, not a little village. Uh, but they were walking out towards, um, towards the outskirts, out into the countryside, and they said that this huge black cat jumped over the wall, the dry stone wall to the right, landed in the road, looked at them, and then bounced over the, the dry stone wall to the left and disappeared off down um, you know down the uh, down the fields so again you know there's there's been quite a lot of sightings over the years and, and there's been a lot of animal mutilation cases um in todmorden as well which um you know have have been put down to possible ufo or, or uap activity Um, but with the number of, of sightings of big cats, you know, it's difficult sometimes to tell who the culprit is with, um, with these sort of things, you know? So, Mm. um, I mean, the, the, the calf mutilation from a couple of years ago was quite interesting because it was, you know, the, the injuries that, and I'll try not to be too graphic, but the injuries were surgical. And again, that sort of follows a, a theme of, Um, these type of injuries to uh, animals not not only just in this country but you know all across the world especially you know over in america and and even you know in places like australia and new zealand you know they're finding these these animal mutilation cases where the the injuries are are almost surgical the too precise to be um a big cat or or a predator um because the you know they're not damaging the carcass in in the way that a predator would um, now interestingly i spoke to a guy called uh mick mclaren who does a lot of stuff over on uh winter hill near uh bolton um, and they've been getting a lot of um a lot of sheep mutilations over there and they've also had sightings of of cryptids as well in fact there was a, a sighting of um what probably he describes a dogman which um apparently was was there was a guy driving driving along a, a, a country lane dark country lane one one evening um, and suddenly this thing appeared at his uh, at his driver's window um, and he said it basically looked like a big dog um, but it was run <laughs> it was running along uh, the side of the car uh, and he said he was doing about 40 mile an hour oh my god this thing were keep going <laughs> So um, there's been quite a few sightings. Very similar. And in fact, when I was talking to Paul Sinclair last week and he told me a very similar story um, of something that, that happened up, uh, up his neck of the woods, which was very similar. You know, somebody driving along and suddenly this thing appeared and, and was keeping up with the car. Um, so that's, that's, you know, quite, quite interesting. But yeah, Winter Hill, there's, there's a lot of animal mutilations up there at the minute. and There's quite a bit of UFO activity as well. Um, So whether the two are linked um, is the big question, really.
1: What's interesting about animal mutilations is obviously they've been going back decades of reports. So sort of my question around them is, if this is some unknown other that is doing these mutilations, what are they doing it for? They've been doing it for so long. Mm -hmm. And if they have technology that's more advanced than we could even think of, what are they still looking for if they're just doing this for decades and decades
2: yeah exactly um i think i think there's more i think the more um animal related um crypto related cryptid related sorry rather than um crypto as a currency in it um cryptid (laughs) related rather than um sort of ufo abduction type Scenario, they, they obviously tend to be more people. Um, and that, that's not an area really that I've done an awful lot of research into, other than you know, sort of read the story of Alan Godfrey because it's interesting because it's it's relatively close to where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of these animal mutilation cases, I think they are more cryptid um rather than anything else, but it still doesn't explain why you find carcasses that have been attacked in such a way where there there is um you know very precise injuries very surgical um if it was a, a predator then you would think that there would be a bit more um dare i say blood and guts involved whereas you know the vast majority of these Uh, animal mutilation cases there's no blood there's there's no you know there's nothing to suggest that that it's been a frenzied attack and in fact the one at Todmorden the the calf one at Todmorden um, and I've seen photos of it they are precise you know uh, they are precise uh, cuts they are precise removal of parts of the animal there was no blood around the animal. Um, there, it, there was no sign of a struggle around the animal. It was up on moorland, so it was quite uh, boggy and, and quite sort of short, tough grass, you know, marshland in effect. Um, there was no sign of any any other animal being around. There were no prints on the ground around it. You know, if it was a, if it was a big cat, you'd expect big cat footprints in the mud. Well, there wasn't. Um, And in fact, it looked to to all intents and purposes like it had been dropped from above or in fact not even dropped, just placed from above. Um, There was nothing around it to suggest there'd been a struggle at all. So it is quite a perplexing one, that, to be honest.
1: You mentioned Pendle Hill quite a few times. Obviously, the name of your podcast is Paranormal Pendle Podcast. Um, And in your new book, you, you do talk about the Pendle Witch Trials obviously a very famous um, set of incidents. I was reading recently, I think they either have done or they are going to pardon yeah, uh, the witches that were executed up there. And so what is it that you talk about in the book relating to the, the witch trials? Um, well, I'll look at the um, the investigation that
2: was done prior to the witches being, witches in inverted commas, the, the people who were charged with witchcraft um, actually being taken to lancaster castle to the assizes at lancaster because that's where they were tried um, and that's where they were found guilty and that's where they were uh, executed or all of them apart from one who who died in custody so i look at um the evidence that uh or, or the really it's the the interrogation techniques that were used because there is only one um contemporary record of what went on so the uh, the record of the interrogations the questioning um, it all comes from one source and what i wanted to do was have a look at, at what what was established what questions were asked what these people admitted to um, and some of the things according to the records that they admitted to were quite um you know, quite quite strange, really. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't admit readily admit to being uh, in league with the devil and and doing the things that they said that they'd done. Um, for instance, digging up dead bodies and and using the body parts for for magic purposes, for you know, making spells that sort of thing. Um, you wouldn't readily admit to doing these sort of things. Um, unless it, you either genuinely believed it, or um, you were coerced into saying things that weren't, ne- you know, weren't necessarily, weren't necessarily true, or they'd been recorded in such a way. So the interesting thing about the, the Pendle witch trials is that, as I said, there was only one contemporary record um, that was written about all the lead up to the trials and then the actual trial themselves. So I wanted to look at the lead up to the trial um, and I'll go into quite a lot of detail about, you know, the questioning who was who was questioned, what they admitted to, um, what they didn't admit to in some cases. Um, and then compare that to, to how other well-known witch trials were conducted at the time. So one of the more contemporary ones uh, around about the same time or just before was the Berwick witch trials up in up in Scotland, um, and looking at, at the way that they conducted the trials there, which were completely different to what the records show happened at the Pendle witch trials. Um, there was a lot more coercion involved. There was a lot more torture involved, um, and there was it was a bigger group of people as well. And interestingly, it was. The Berwick Witch Trials, actually, which set James the first off on his, um, you know, his, his personal uh, vendetta against witches. Um, he wrote his, his book, Demonology. Um, he, when he came to the English throne, he, he pushed through a lot of laws, passed a lot of laws, um, outlawing witchcraft. And, and and it was all really down to what he'd seen and, and what he'd witnessed at the, at the Berwick Witch Trials. Um, and then I'll look at some other uh, less notable witch trials in Lancashire because, uh, you know, there were lots. I mean, you know, even up, up until the, uh, the 18th century, you know, there were still people being accused of witchcraft. Um, you tended to find that after, after the sort of 1650s, there were less people being executed, um, although it did still happen. Um, th- there wasn't quite the same. Uh, frenzy once James the was, was no longer on the throne, so that's um, that's that's quite a lengthy chapter really about um, about witchcraft, about you know the questioning technique.
0: So thank you for sharing yeah. those bits to both. Yeah, yeah. One thing that um, we've spoken to um, about recently on podcasts uh, and had several guests on on this subject is poltergeist activity yeah now um listening to some podcasts that you've done recently uh, i understand that you have had for the last sort of 10 years your own activity in your house you'd like to share some of the the detail on that as well
2: strange things that have happened yeah um well this goes back you know quite quite a, a number of years really um Probably, yeah, probably about 10 years. Um it's it all it all centers around a piano that um Sarah bought. Um I think I think our son was about five at the time. So yeah, it'd be about 10 years ago. Um now, you know, this was not an expensive piece of kit, you know. Um it it was it wasn't it didn't cost us an awful lot of money. We bought it from a from a shop in Clitheroe. Um but it's uh, it's an upright piano. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's it's an absolutely lovely piece of furniture. Um, it was it was made in 1908 in uh, Leipzig in Germany. And I actually contacted the company who made it, it's a company called uh, Bluthner, and I contacted the um, there's the, a the, the, uh, an outlet in London. I contacted them and gave them the serial number there's actually a a brass plaque on the inside of the piano which i would never have found it was only when we 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 got a local guy to come in and tune it up for us um the reason why sarah bought it really is because she's musical she plays the piano um she also plays the cello as well um but our son was learning to play the piano at the time Um, he wanted to, to learn how to play the guitar and the piano so of course, as parents do, you know, you go. Out, not only did we buy a guitar, but we bought them a piano as well. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I wrote to uh, to Bluthner, and they sent me uh, basically the history that they knew of the piano. Um, and it had been bought. Uh, it had been been shipped over from Germany, um, as I said, pre First World War. It had been bought by uh, a family. Um, in a town called Haslindon near Bury, uh Manchester way. and it seemed that it had stayed in the same family um for probably about a hundred years. Uh, and it was only uh, when there was um, this the guy that we bought it from he was doing a house clearance um, and he'd, he'd been asked if he wanted to to buy the piano, which he did. Um, brought it back to Clitheroe, and, and we ended up buying it, and hence it's now in my dining room. So um, when, we, when we first got it, I had a bit of an odd feeling about it, um, and we started having uh, a run of, I think bad luck is probably the best way to put it, or should I say Sarah had a run of bad luck um various things happened including um she was made redundant um from a job there was there was various other things just just things that that just you know seemed to happen that that were just bad luck really and i joked at the time i said it's that piano it's brought us bad luck you know there's something attached to it anyway over the years um i've noticed that first of all the the dining room where the piano is, is absolutely freezing cold. It's a really, really cold room, even in summer. Now, you know, we we live in a in a bungalow. um, So the front of the house on one side, we've got the lounge. On the other side, we've got the dining room. So they're independent rooms Uh, and they're both quite cold because they both face north and, and we're quite high up where we live and, and we get you know we do get the weather um as you do in lancashire because it very rarely it's very rarely sunny um but the dining room is is remarkably colder um it's it's a few degrees colder so that was the first thing i noticed um my son about three or four years ago it's, it's really about three or four years ago when things things have started happening more often and he said that he went into the dining room and he said there was a mist. He said it was misty when he went in. Um, now, of course, first thing I thought was something was on fire. So, so I, I, I went legging it into the dining room. Nothing. It was, I, But I, I couldn't see this mist that he was talking about. But it did feel particularly cold. You know, really, really freezing cold. And then we started noticing um, shadows on the wall, especially in the lounge. So... There was, um, there was an instance where, well, I, I'd been seeing them for a while, um, and it turns out that Sarah had been seeing them for a while as well. It's just that we'd never told each other. Um, and it was only one, one evening we were sat watching telly, one Saturday night, and we both said at the same time, did you see that? And we both saw this dark figure moving across the wall and in front of the TV. Now, we live on a... I mean, the, the, somebody said to me, was not a car light outside or something like that? Well, we live on a cul-de-sac. We get very few cars coming up at night. Um, and when we do, it illuminates the um, the curtains. So it's not, it's not the same thing as, as a car light. And we're also set quite well back from the road as well. So most of the time, we don't even know if there's a car turning around on, on the cul-de-sac, we just can't, can't see it. So it definitely wasn't um, car headlights or anything like that. Um, and as I say, we've, we've also seen this as well, but I've seen it during the day. So, you know, that sort of debunks the, the car headlight theory. Um, I have started smelling um, really strong perfume. And this has happened over the last sort of 12 months, but this is this is like the only, the, the best way I can describe it, and I've had people in stitches and say this, but it's, old lady perfume so it's that really strong floral horrible gets in the back of your nose gets in the back of your throat makes you gag you know 1970s you know avon estee lauder <laughs> other perfumes are available <laughs> sorry the connection's going on um yeah so really really strong smell um of perfume and then the most bizarre thing that happened, um, happened probably about four or five months ago now. Um, and we we sort of noticed that there has been an increase in just a feeling that we might not be the only people in the room when we're on our own. So um, there's been a few times where I've had a feeling where there's been somebody else uh, in the house when I know there hasn't. Um, because I've been working from home quite a lot over the last few years. Um, there's been several times where the dogs have sat up, bolt upright, and just stared up at the ceiling, uh, especially we've, we've got a couple of Cocker Spaniels and they are particularly, they seem to be particularly um, sensitive to, to something. Um, and this particular incident happened it was um it was around about lunchtime and i was i was actually getting the dogs ready to take them out for a walk now we have a front door obviously which has got um a sort of frosted glass in it so you can see outside see if there's anybody out the front of the house um, i've also got one of those video doorbells as well so if anybody comes to the front door my phone tells me um, and then we've got like a sort of inner door so it's like about Maybe only about four or five square feet. It's like a, a vestibule, basically. Um, and you know, we have the dog leads hung up in there and courts and what have you. So this particular lunchtime, I was I was putting the dog harnesses on, I was putting the leads on, and there was um, it was just a bit of junk mail that had been stuck in the letterbox, and it had actually been stuck there for a couple of days. We'd not had any post for a couple of days. Um, and this bit of junk mail was just stuck in the letterbox. Now, the letterbox is is like a sort of it's like it's brass, I think. It, it's but it's got a really tight spring on it. So, in order to get something through from the outside, you have to really push it through. Or if it gets stuck halfway through, you've got to pull it. You know, from from the inside, it won't just fall out because it's held firm by the the spring being so tight on the on the letterbox. So I'm putting the dog, dog's leads on, and there's there's this bit of junk mail stuck halfway in and halfway out of the letterbox. And all of a sudden, it just, the only way I can describe it, it, it was the same as somebody grabbing hold of it from the inside and pulling it out of the letterbox. But I couldn't see anything do it. It just did it on its own accord. And and the letterbox, it sort of snapped. You know that that noise it makes, but you know when it's a really tight spring and metal on metal, made that noise as it pulled it through. Um, And I I just stood there and looked and I thought, how that because there was nobody outside. It wasn't pushed through from outside because A, I could see through the frosted glass, and B, the doorbell, uh, the uh, uh, door camera didn't tell me there was anybody knocking about. Um, And I'd have known if there was anybody outside you know, the front door. So there's no explanation for that. It couldn't have been pushed through from outside. Uh, I didn't pull it. The dogs didn't grab hold of it and pull it. Somebody said, well, did your dogs not get hold of it? Well, no, they didn't because I was putting the leads on at the time. And, and I just happened to look up and I looked at this. I looked at the letterbox and it pulled through immediately as I looked at it. So it was almost as if there was some unseen hand that grabbed hold of it and pulled it through the letterbox um whether or not to get my attention or whether to let me know that there was something there but there's absolutely no explanation and, and I've, I've since got letters and stuck them halfway in the letterbox and then grabbed them and pulled them through myself and i know how hard you have to pull it through in order to pull it you know because of the spring on it so it was pulled with force um and whatever it was was invisible but I didn't feel like there was anything around me. And certainly the dogs didn't react in a strange way, which, you know, given it such a tight space, you know, it's only, like like I said, about two, two and a half feet square. Um, If there was something in there with us, then you'd think at least the dogs might have reacted. But in this particular case, they didn't. But there is no other explanation. It couldn't have been pushed through from outside. It didn't just fall out because actually it came out horizontally about two or three feet and then just dropped to the ground so um, my only explanation is that some unseen hand grabbed hold of it and pulled it through the letterbox now i get since then we've again we've had lots of um, shadows I've seen lots of shadows out the corner of my eye um, I've again smelt this perfume it was only a couple of days ago actually that, that I smelt the perfume again um, in fact I was I was telling Sarah off I said will you change your bloody deodorant it stinks and she said it's not me it's not it's just a completely different smell um it's like a really really strong floral cheap old lady perfume smell that's the only way I can I can describe it so has something come along with the piano yes I think it probably has um I, 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 I remain to see what happens next basically. Um, but it is quite, it's quite strange. Yeah.
0: Do you get a feeling of any kind of presence around? So I know you said you didn't when this thing was. when I mean,
2: I have, I have at other times. Yeah. 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 I've, I've walked into a room, sorry. I've walked into a room, um, and there's been, there's only been me been in the house. And I felt like there's been somebody else in there as well. Um, now, bizarrely, it tends to be more in the lounge than in the uh, dining room where the piano is. But like I said, it's just absolutely freezing cold in there. Um, it, it's, it can be it can be warm outside. It can be a summer's day outside, and yet it is still freezing cold in there. So, um, But it's not, I don't get, I don't get a feeling of of another presence around the piano or in that, you know, in the dining room. Um, It tends to be in other parts of the house. So, So, yeah, very spooky. Yeah. But it it didn't really bother me, to be honest. I I mean, thinking about it now, um, I should have been completely freaked out. But for some reason, I wasn't. I don't know why. I just sort of thought, oh, that was a bit weird carried on putting the dog's leads on and then went out for a walk. And it was it was probably when I was uh, on my normal routes. I thought that were a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I suppose, I suppose you do get used to, to things happening sometimes. And we've had things go missing, you know, I mean, we've had the usual car keys going missing and then suddenly turning up in the most bizarre place um, or places. Um, so yeah, it's there's there's definitely something definitely something going on but it's quite apart from that with the letterbox it's it's been quite sort of low level we've not really had any any things being moved around other than a couple of times where, like i say we've had car keys turn up in odd places one one of them i've just remembered this recently actually in fact sarah reminded me we found my car keys in a plant pot in the dining room in an empty plant pot um now there's absolutely no way that even me with my, you know, limited memory would have, would have dropped my car keys in a plant pot in the dining room. So how they got there, I don't know. Unless James put them in there, but he was not, he's not admitting it. <laughs> it's, not, it's, <laughs> not, it's not the sort of thing
1: he'd do, you see. So. Uh, I, other port guys' cases that we've sort of talked about, you mentioned there about it sort of being low level. But I, in past cases, it starts off low level and then it sort of increases to things being moved and then ultimately... Leads to people being touched or even assaulted in certain, in certain cases. Do You have a, a maybe, maybe a fear is not the right word, but like a sort of temptation um, that that could happen.
2: Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, I've I've got a theory why it's it's become more. Um, things have started happening more recently over the last few years, and I think it's because my son is going through puberty. Um, now you know historically, I think a lot of poltergeist cases they tend to. Attribute them to to girls, to young girls, um, when they're going through puberty. But I think, I think a lot of it obviously is to do with with emotional energy. And you know, he is particularly grumpy. He is particularly argumentative. You know, you know what they like like. Um, he's particularly smelly. You know, he, he'll, he, he eats <laughs> out the fridge and grunts. Um, but ever since, you know, it, it's been the last sort of two or three years. Um, Were when it's coincided really with him, you know, getting to that age where where things are starting to happen for him, um, and I wonder whether that has been or whether whatever it is is attaching itself to 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 his energy or his his emotional energy. Now to answer your question, Ash, I think it'll probably I I wouldn't be surprised if it dies off once he gets a little bit older. So once he, I mean, he's 16 this year. So let's say another year, maybe till he gets to 18 or something like that. Perhaps if he's still here, um, it might start to, to tail off a little bit as, as he changes as he gets older. Um, you know, maybe he's not going to have that same sort of emotional energy attached to, to him that, that he has at the minute. Um, do I wonder about it getting worse or do I worry about it it getting worse yeah but there's not a right lot I can do about it really Um, what is going to happen will happen Um, and strangely I don't really get a malevolent feeling to it although as I said we we had quite a bit of bad luck when when we first got it things went very quiet after a couple of years and you know probably for about five or six years and then It's started up again, coinciding with you know James getting older, as I said. But I don't I don't get a particularly malevolent feeling um about it. It it, it doesn't it doesn't scare me in that way. I'm not worried about it in that way. Um I'm more um interested to see what it's gonna do next. I mean, if it starts pushing me around and throwing things at me, then I might feel a little bit different, you know. But at the minute it's it's not that physical. Um, it's more it's more audible. Um, you know I I have I've heard you know bangs and and the usual sort of stuff, um, which strangely have, 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 we haven't heard for about 12 months. We went through a period where we we're hearing a lot of banging going on. Um, usually around about tea time at night, strangely enough about five, five, six o'clock at night. Um, I actually put it down to pipes, but I'm not sure, Um, you know, central heating pipes, but I'm not, I'm not sure really, but that's, that's stopped now. That doesn't seem to be happening anymore. Um, So I'm just sort of uh, curious really as, as to what, if anything, if it is going to intensify and and if it does, you know, in, in what way it's going to, it's going to increase activity. Awesome.
1: Well, obviously, let us know if, if any, any developments. I oh, Will, yeah. don't worry. There's
2: quite a lot of people interested in this one. I, I actually, bet, I bet. I, bet. I, did, um, I did speak to a medium, actually, who uh, lived in the village or, or lives in, in my village. Uh, I had no idea she was a medium. She's on, on one of my podcasts. She's called Mandy. Um, and she she does mediumship, out-of-body experience, remote view and all that sort of stuff. Um and i was telling her about it actually and she she said that she was contacted by a friend of hers who is a medium and from what from what she'd heard she said that she was really worried for me um and she gave me her details and i I contacted her but she obviously wasn't that worried because she never got back to me um (laughs) she's a bit odd but, um, but, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of people, I think, of taking a bit of an interest in the haunted piano. So I shall keep everybody informed.
0: Yeah, it starts definitely. playing
2: itself, then I, <laughs> I
1: think I might get it moved out. Definitely. Awesome, awesome. Well, everything we talked about tonight is just a snippet of what's in your new book, The Black Monks of Accenture. Yeah. So where can our listeners find the book and also your podcast and more about you? okay well
2: probably the best place to go actually where everything is all in one place is my website so that's www.craigbryant.co.uk there's links to the books both of the books actually which are on amazon and there's also a link to uh, the podcast as well which is on all good podcast providers itunes um, google the works all of them
1: amazon you name it (laughs) it's on there Awesome! Yeah, so uh, thanks, Craig, again for chatting to us. Awesome stories again. It's fascinating. I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> yeah,
0: <definitely. laughs> yeah.
2: Thank you. Oh, Riz, Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg.